Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
sorry, but it says way too much about him dancing to be a white man. He was going to be a white man. Right? So, I understand what that does in our mind, but we've got to start with that. Because if we are going to understand why it was that Jesus introduced us to the idea of God as Father, we've got to start with the fact that God is not male. Okay? It is, we'll, we'll probably dig really deep into this um, on one of our Thursdays, but the, the fact of the matter is we have absolutely misogynized the entire concept within spirituality and within Christendom. And we've viewed it through a lens that says um, that God is this. And so men are a more accurate depiction of who God is. And the only way a woman can be the fullness of what God wants her to be is when she's doing healing work. That's literally what St. Augustine said about women. St. Augustine, the person who is probably the more influential to what we believe about God than anybody else, said that a man separate from a woman is 100% as a representation of who God is. And a woman, when joined to a man, is 100% representation of who God is. Yet a woman separate from herself serves no purpose, except to come and minister to men. In fact, he went on to say, uh, St. Augustine actually went on to say, that, um, that other than bearing children, he could find no use for a woman. Except I'm further from my spouse than you are, so you might want to duck. But true. Exactly what he said. He said that if it was for companionship, that God would have been better off to create a man and a man because they could have a more intellectual conversation. He was also single. Just to be clear, just as a side note, he was also single. But this is the guy. Now, we know that's ridiculous, right? We all like roll our eyes and laugh our heads off. But you also realize that um, guys like John Piper, who are very, 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 very prevalent in, in the church today, he just wrote an article a couple months ago that said that there were certain jobs that women were not suited to, one of which was being a pastor. It was not that they were not, God didn't design them with that. They don't have the capacity for that. Police officers is another one. that surround us in this area don't believe a woman can be a pastor. Most. Now, they may not all practice that way, but in their doctrinal statements, that's what they say. So, we've got some issues. And the issue starts with God is not a man. God is a father. And God, the reason, we're going to look at gave us to look at the nature or character of how he visits and deals with us. 
to start by clarifying that the being of God is no more male and father than it is female and mother. We embrace this language as a window that Jesus used to look into the nature of God. We also understand that this language is vital to the basis of home, family, and affirmation within his desire to free us from fear and plant us as sons. It would be beneficial for us to quickly tackle why Jesus said father. We find an answer to that question with another potential question. When the Bible says we are called to be sons, does this exclude women from the invitation? Like if I were to ask all of the women in the room and I were to say, okay, the Bible says if to those that believe in him, he gives you power to become sons. We don't, I don't stop every time and say men and daughters because we all agree. We know we're like, yeah, that was the language that was used in our minds. Right. And we understand that there's something that's trying to be conveyed and that it's not intended to be an exclusive thing. So why don't we do that with God? In the same way that when we read, when you come to God, he makes you a son. Why do we automatically infer that when we come to God as a father, that makes him a man? is of course no we understand two things first that in the day in which the scriptures were written it was very a very misogynistic culture we know this and while we don't accept it today we understand that it, that within the language the second thing and what i mean by that is do you realize that it was very 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 common for them to actually write the women out of the scriptures most of the first century um, apostles in their own writings Josephus, uh, Arrhenius, and several of the other early writers included women within the disciples that walked with Jesus. They actually included women within the leaders of the church. We use one of the examples we talk about this was the the, uh, the woman at the well that we talk about the Samaritan woman at the well, and we just kind of say, "Oh, well, you know." First of all, you know, we just automatically imply that her name must have been Roxanne because she was, you know, messing around with everybody and or, or maybe run around too. I don't know what her name was. Uh, but, you know, because Jesus is reading her mail. That, well, I know the guy you're with now and your husband, right? No, no, I'm just saying. So we stop with this idea of the Samaritan woman. And we don't understand that her name in the New Testament, actually, if you look in the book of Acts, her name is Pantatini. She is a sainted woman that was the leader of the first century church. Peter, John, and James wouldn't do something or launch a missionary crusade without going and talking to her and asking her what God said about a curse. The Samaritan woman. She's not in your Bible in the book of Acts. Why? Why is it in the book? Is it in the upper room that you find that it mentions the men? How many men there are? Why is it that uh, it will it will talk about in some of the miracle scenarios where Jesus provided things? It will name how many men there were, and we have to because that's just how they were. It's a very misogynistic culture. So we have to understand first of all when it says things like sons, we automatically know that there's an implication that there's daughters there. But the way it was written at that time was that we also have to understand that whenever we're reading the Pauline writings and he's saying things like women need to be quiet in the church. I'm just going to say this, and this is absolutely too far for this Sunday morning. 
Paul wasn't Jesus. Get over it. Paul functioned as slavery. Do we want to go there? Paul wasn't Jesus. And in my, from where I'm standing, Jesus was a feminist. Jesus, who are the first people Jesus talked to after the resurrection? Women. Who are the ones he told to carry the message of the resurrection? Women. Who are the one who is the longest exchange that you find Jesus having with a person in the entire Bible? A woman. Over and over and over and over again. Jesus was absolutely all about upending that culture. Jesus didn't take part in that. Jesus understood equality. He came and said things like the servants are going to be equal to Caesar, which really ticked everybody off. That was Jesus. When Jesus came on the scene, he leveled the playing field. There was no Jew or Greek. There was no man or woman. There was no slave or master. There was beloved. That's Jesus. Okay? So, we have to start there. That's the first thing. Second, the use of sons in the Bible spoke of the importance of the inheritance. In that culture, you had to have a son to inherit what you possessed. In many cases, if you didn't, you would lose all of the, all that you had excuse me, to another family. So, we see that the use of sons in that day was emphasizing in their culture the place we had with God. It was used to clarify that we are choice heirs. In fact, the language used speaks to us being firstborn sons. So when it says we are sons, if we believe, it actually means everybody's the firstborn. Which isn't that weird to even think about. It doesn't make sense. But he's saying that's how, because the firstborn got the best of the inheritance. So the reason sons are used and not daughters is because they were trying to convey the weight and the gravity of the inheritance that everything that belonged to God immediately belonged to us just as it would the firstborn son. If they had said, if you come to God and believe your daughters, it wouldn't have made any sense and they wouldn't have felt like they gained anything. Because a daughter was actually, it was illegal for a daughter to actually reap an inheritance. So if you were the only daughter and only child of a, a, the, the wealthiest family um, uh, in Capernaum and your father passed away, they would either, you, what he would typically try to do is he would try to marry you off and they would actually have to have proceedings to see if it was acceptable for him to give that to his then son-in-law. Or if he died before that could happen, he lost it all. So it would have made no sense for them to say daughters. They had to say sons. Not because God is misogynistic, but simply because they were conveying in the language of the time to say, this is the level of the inheritance you get to walk in. <clears throat> the firstborn retained the birthright, and with it, the best of what belonged to the father. In this same way, we acknowledge that women are a vital part of God's story and God, and in no way excluded because our language says sons. We've also, we also then have to recognize, if that's the case, that the language of father is for, the pur- for that purpose or a purpose and not defining 
what God is. Imagery was never intended to define God, but rather to be a window through which we see facets and aspects of his nature and character. Let me ask you a really silly question. When you get to heaven, do you expect to see, to run to Jesus, to bow at his feet, and him to bow at you? Yet is he called a lamb many times? In the same way that Jesus, we are given the image of the lamb to give us an understanding of the character of his nature. And the facets of who he is and what he does for us. Father is the same thing. If you expect to get up there and God to have this, this um, you know, view complex. It's just not the way it works. And in my opinion, part of the disservice that's happened throughout time is that because we've been so male, God-focused, it has forced people who have had very, 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 very bad male interactions with authority figures to look for maternal influences to relate with, and that's why you come with mother norms and mother nature that people very frequently pray to when they try to find other ways to feel like God. Okay, so far, this is why, because I want to know why. Why did you, so if we've established God's not a dude, why did Jesus say father? Because I have to stop and, and say, here's the deal. I believe in the language of father God. I fully subscribe. There are, there are movements in this day that have moved to actually saying we are, uh, it is equally acceptable to use father or mother as a pronoun for God. I don't subscribe to that, not because I think that it's necessarily wrong in and of that God defines himself as an earthly mother. You realize in the Old Testament, God frequently defines himself in feminine terms and says not so. But Jesus came to show us father. Jesus called God Father. And if Jesus gave that example, that's the example I want to follow. Not because I'm discounting who God is, or, or better said, what he is. But I, I do believe that it has more to do with why Jesus said Father is because of what it afforded to us. The Old Testament regularly used language, the most predominant language in the Old Testament to define God and his nature and character was things like judge, general, and warrior. Right? When they used pictures to define God, it, he was a judge, he was a general, and it led an army or a warrior. Why do you think that was? Because in that day, those were the, uh, um, um, the pictures, the imagery that referenced authority or leadership. They didn't respect anybody who wasn't those things. If you couldn't hold your own in the battlefield, you didn't, you didn't have respect. So they viewed God 
in, in terms that made sense at that time, judge, general, and warrior, because those were terms. I'm not saying God isn't those terms. I'm not saying it can't be those terms. But if you expect that you're going to get up there and he's going to have on a black robe with a gavel, we've really missed it. Because if we stop with God as judge in the Old Testament and then see God as father in the New Testament, we think he's got a split personality. That was never what he was. It was just the lens that culturally allowed them to see who God was in a way that they could relate to. They would have never, ever said God as father in the Old Testament because that wasn't something that made sense. People wouldn't follow a father. They would follow a general. So Jesus comes on the scene. In the Old Testament, the only 15, less than 15 times, you find God referenced in a fatherly language. Less than 15 times in the entire Old Testament. Jesus over 65 times references God as father. That's a whole lot of difference. And I think that part of the reason is because Jesus said, yes, he is the warrior that defends himself. Yes, he is the general. Yes, he is the judge in that he separates and he restores and he deals with that kind of thing. But Jesus was trying to display family. If you're going to display family, what better way to, what better language to use than you have a father? Jesus' fatherhood language had a ton to do with, yes, he's all of that stuff, but he's also family because he was creating an alternate culture in which we all belong and which we were all together in which we all were part of a family. He was the patriarch of home for us. And in that way, he was saying that God is holy and he's righteous and he's a judge and he's all that stuff that we've always, they've always taught. But you realize that the language he, and the specific word Abba, it's just not found in the Old Testament. It's a really rare thought. And people have said that it means daddy, and, and I think that's accurate. As I've studied it further, I really don't think it's just daddy, though. I, it's actually a word that's really broad. It's a word that a child would use for its dad, like daddy, whenever you're a child. But it actually is then a word that also is used by adults towards their dad in a very loving and relationship way. So what I, what I think we have to remember about that is it's daddy whenever you're a child, but as you grow, how many children, um, how many of us lose that thing with our dad like we had when we were kids? It's when we, and, and typically what happens is we get all grown up and we think we've got it figured out. The older I get, the less my dad knows. And then I realize, right? It's quite the opposite. Um, and so what happens is the reason he chose Abba is it's a term that works for your entire life, but speaks of that very close relational exchange you have with your father. So that's why Jesus said father. So Jesus, the first time he uses this is um, on the sermon, within the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. He says this again in Luke 6, 
36, be ye therefore merciful as your father is merciful. Then from his conversation with the woman at the well, uh, John 4, 21, Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, Jesus saying at this moment. But the hour comes, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. Do you realize that the Father doesn't seek worship? God does not seek worship. He seeks worshipers. Because as we spoke several months ago, the, in the intention of worship, the reason we were designed to have that type of exchange with him was not because God is looking for adoration or affirmation. It's because as we worship him, when we see him, we're made like him. So the most gracious and generous thing he could do is design us to worship him and seek for people to worship. If he was seeking for worship, it would be self-serving. When he seeks for worshipers, he's seeking a relational exchange. That give and take of communion, that's what he seeks. And isn't it interesting that Jesus so clearly utilized this language, and it totally freaked everybody out. Way freaked them out. They found it to be maybe almost as irreverent as some of the stuff I've said this morning. Almost. Why? Because they felt like as soon as you say something like Father, which God, that you're depicting him in a way that lessens the reverence you're supposed to, be, to feel, the supreme being of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, they, some of the earliest teaching, they said that they weren't even allowed to say his name. They didn't feel like they could. The only way they would pronounce his name when they would say it in the Old Testament was breath. So when they would say, what God are you serving? They would say, <sighs> because they didn't feel worthy to say the name. So that's been the language this entire time. And now Jesus comes and says, yeah, that's my dad. That's really, really, really radical. That is really radical. So what we have to understand is first he starts just using the tongue father. Then he starts making it very specific. The first time Jesus makes this word or, or term personal is um, when he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. Um, verse uh, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. John 5.17 says this. Jesus answered them and said, My Father worketh hitherto and I work. That goes even further. So what, here's what Jesus did. So Jesus started saying things like, God is your Father. And they're like, whoa. Then he starts saying, My Father. And they freak out. They freak out. Here's why. You do realize that the entire book of Revelation is not about the end of days. 
spend like probably two hours with this topic soon. The book of Revelation is not about the end of days. It's not. It doesn't have anything to do with that. What there are pictures of in it and the judgment of is an entire theology. It is a, it is a, a the judging of a world system that says once a Babylon or a Rome or a pick whatever current world scale power you would like, comes to power and starts to impose its will upon others, it becomes godlike. That is the definition that the Bible uses of idolatry. So what John keeps talking about in Revelation is the judging of world systems that prop themselves up as gods, and how that at that time the church had gotten in bed with the state. The church had gotten, have you, has anybody ever heard of the Crusades? Right? So what had happened was, which isn't it, tell me, isn't it the weirdest thing, I was thinking about this when I was praying, isn't it the weirdest thing in the world that the Crusades are probably the biggest black mark on Christendom that exists? I mean, it is, it is, they would literally go into a land and execute hundreds of thousands of Muslims purely because of their faith and do it behind a cross sign. And yet, whenever we're going to have some type of evangelistic campaign, what do we call it? How about anything but that? Like, anything but that. Seriously, like, we use crusade, like, because that, that means one thing, folks. So what happens is, that's what happens that's what happens when it goes to the nth degree, when it's worked all the way out. Jesus, him saying, my father, was to judge that whole system because what he was saying, and what was so upsetting, the reason they were crucifying people and stoning people, um, Rome was executing state-sanctioned um, executions. It was never because they had faith. You realize the most radical thing that could be said in the early church, the New Testament church, was Jesus is Lord. The reason is because the, the, what they had to commit to or pledge to daily was Caesar is Lord. So as an example, you know how we would say, I what allegiance to the flag? Right. Right? I pledge allegiance to the flag. I, I'm not comparing that. Maybe. I'm just using something we would understand. In the same way, they would say Caesar is Lord. That was their pledge of allegiance to say that Caesar is the only one I will serve. So when they came up with this idea of Jesus is Lord, it was, we think it's no big deal. To them, it was literally the most radical thing you could possibly say. Because they took a language that was very, 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 very world system and said, nope, I'm going to turn it on its ear and say Jesus is that. And that's what they crucified him for. That's what they stoned him for. That's what they ripped him apart for. So when Jesus came and started saying things like, my father and your father, that's why it was so upending because what it meant was God, the only supreme deity, is everybody's father. And he was the rich man's father. He was the poor man's father. He was the servant's father. And he was the slave master's father. He was the, um, the, the well-to-do and he was this guy living on the streets, and they just couldn't handle that. 
But that's why he said father. Just to say everybody's inheritance is the same. So you find this in Pauline's writing, uh, in the Pauline writings over 40 times. Now the thing you have to remember is, here's what gets really weird, and I'm going to sum up with this um, pretty quickly, is that in the, in the writings of Paul, Paul had never read the Gospels. Right? Paul had not read the writings of Jesus. Paul actually died about 30 years before the first Gospel was written. So the only understanding of Jesus that Paul had is what somebody else that walked with Jesus told him or what Jesus told him when he would show up. That's weird for us, but I think it speaks very, very, very largely to how incredible Paul was that he was able to see into things in the way that he could without the very basic foundation of Jesus. He had Jesus, but he didn't have anything Jesus said. It's not like he'd go, well, I'm going to come over here to Mark and see what Jesus had to say on the idea of kingship. So what we have to understand is for Paul to reference God as father, which he does over 40 times, is literally revolutionary. Why? Because he had never heard Jesus doing that. He hadn't read Jesus saying, now God is Father, and Paul goes, oh, okay, yeah, I can get with that. I'm good to go. Paul was a Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees. So everything he understood was the reverence of God, that you can't touch God, that you can't speak of God, you can't do anything, you can't get near him, all that stuff. So all of a sudden, somehow, because of the grace window of Jesus, where Jesus came and started using language like it's a family and God's the Father, and understanding that there's an inheritance that comes with that, and Jesus would have never, ever, 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 ever used the language, God is your mother, because a mother couldn't give an inheritance. So he had to use father to understand the weight of what we received when we join his family. So within that, Paul somehow, not ever having read these writings, gets it. Does this sound anything like testimonies on Thursdays? How we keep saying that when somebody else receives it in the family, there's a grace opening for access to that thing. That's literally what happened with Paul. So over 40 times he refers to God as father or in fatherhood language, never having read Jesus say that, never having been told it's okay. Never, I, he just got it. Maybe Jesus is with him, we just don't know about it, but at least it's not recorded. So um, I, I, we're just going to hit a couple of these really quickly. Ephesians 4, uh, these, this is from the, the Passion Translation. Um, I just liked it a little bit better. For the Lord God is one, and so are we. For we share one faith, one baptism, one Father. He is the perfect Father who leads us all, works through us all, and lives in us all. Whoa. That's a big deal. Leads us all, works through us all, and lives in us all. He has generously given to each of us supernatural grace. That's the reason for the father language, because the father of a family is the only one that can do that. The father is the only one that can give inheritance and gifts. So the reason he's exploring father language is because he's, under, he's, he's not depicting God as the righteous judge. He's depicting God as the benevolent father that gives grace and gifts to children. So... Uh, supernatural grace according to the, the size of the gift of Christ. That's a weird thing, and we don't have time for that today, but isn't it kind of wild to think the size, if you ever want to know the size of the gift of grace God has given you, 
is the size of Jesus. That's a decent sized ratio. Like if I had to if I had to say like how big is it? Oh, about twenty by thirty. Oh, Jesus. How big is it, Jesus? That's how big the ratio is. Uh, the Father's love, Second Corinthians one three. All praises belong to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the Father of what? He here is where He gets to define why He's using Father. He didn't just say God. He's not talking about Deus. He's not talking about supreme being. Now he's talking about how God interacts with us. So in the interaction with us, he says what? Tender mercies and everlasting or endless comfort. How many times have we seen other elements of God as Father where the God, the Godfather, oops, that's a different kind of Father. So, we're not going to go to the mattresses. That's not, that's another Godfather reference for those of you who've seen the Godfather. I've not. I've never seen such a thing, and I wasn't allowed to do that. Um, I was watching Left Behind, which I assure you is far more traumatic than the Godfather. <laughs> the Godfather did not make me question my salvation. Left Behind, I stayed at the altar for weeks. So, the thing to understand is we have, how many grew up in a household, and I'm not criticizing this, I'm just asking if this is the case, and you don't have to raise your hand. But how many grew up in a household where when you did something wrong, dad was at work, you did something wrong with mom, and she said, just wait till dad gets home. Right? There was the thought that whatever you're going to, you know, like, with the exception of Regina could, what she could just out, far outweighed any parent that's walked on this side. <laughs> Amber just high-fived her. For those of you on live stream that can't see just what happened in that comment, Amber just high-fived Regina and her ability to dish it out. That is awesome. That is awesome. So... Uh, those of us that grew up in that kind of household, it was very, very, very common for there to be things like wait till your dad gets home or that if, you know, your mom, uh, if there was something you were doing, I'm going to tell your dad. And that was like the big whatever. Right. I remember I, my mom, I've, I've received the rod from my mother more times than I can count. My dad, as I can count on one hand, the amount of times he's whipped me. Right. It, there was a plethora in there. It was I was whipped more than him. But there was a plethora of of mother rod incidents, starting from a very young age. Uh, I think I actually had to take off my diaper for my first rod interaction. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. If CPS is if CPS is watching this, I'm fine. This is not a cry for help. Um, so, you know, uh, but I, I can say that on those few occasions that God, uh, God that mom would say, father is, your father's going to do this, your dad's going to do this. We then see God as that oftentimes. Jesus is going to protect us from dad. 
when we see Father, the reason I think it's so interesting is you never, ever find Father language in the Bible depicting kinship. Because all the writers in the scriptures want to be entirely clear that your father was about embrace and about encouragement, about support, about comfort, about affirmation, not about kinship. But sometimes, especially for those of us who maybe have not so good relationships with our dads, we can then infer and imply those things into the text when we read that about with your dad. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that that may be that may be the case. So the but the truth is I, I've seen her carry Uncle Dong over her shoulder. So I know the 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 efficacy. But the the reality of it is sometimes we imply that we're bringing them together. Right? We think about it like that. They're so clear. Jesus, here's a prayer for us. Uh, we're going to end with this passage. John 17, 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. What he's saying is I'm not just giving this prayer for the disciples. Jesus wants to be entirely clear that this prayer applies to everybody else that comes after him. Everybody else that comes into the family. And he says this prayer is this, that they all, excuse me, verse 21, may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world would believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which you gave me I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I think he's really trying to emphasize something here. One, as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and has loved them, and he have loved as you have loved me. Father, verse twenty four. I will that they also, whom you've given to me, would be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, uh, which thou hast given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Put a pin there. Here's the deal, folks. That's not heaven. When Jesus said this, the actual translation is. Father, let them be with me where I am. Where was he at that moment? Here. It wasn't eternal life language. Well, it is eternal life. It wasn't eternal life in heaven when you fall away faith language. It was let us be one forever. And if you do read the book of Revelation, where do you see Jesus coming? Here. I just put that with an exclamation point. Here. The whole thing of Jesus. He is Emmanuel. God with us. So all of this is about this invitation and exchange that we get to have. 
O righteous Father, verse 25, the world has not known you, but I have known you. These have known that you sent me, and I have declared them unto your name, and I will declare it, that the love wherein you have loved me, you love them, and I am in them. So what that, if I can just sum that up, what he's actually saying in the midst of this incredible passage, this incredible prayer, potentially you could argue the last prayer he prayed over the disciples. What he's actually saying is, God, they have not known you as Father, but you sent me to tell them you are Father and to show them the nature of you as Father. So that if they've seen me, they've seen you. So let me ask you this, as we close. Is there anything in our mind about God as our Father that we don't have in the light of His Word? I know there isn't me. I know there's still some some things holding on, some ropes to hang that I need to let go of because I really have this some moving image thoughts about God. And let me just say, as one of my favorite quotes from Arrhenius, one of the early writings, is God didn't come to, excuse me, Jesus didn't come, excuse me, to change God's mind about you. Jesus came to change our mind about God. had to come to change God's mind. So nope, we're okay. Jesus came because we needed to see who God really was too. And that's our mission as Christians. How clearly can we represent that? So on this Father's Day, I I encourage you and I I bless the idea. I, I, I pray that God would would propel forward and strengthen and galvanize the, the idea and the language that we have of God as our Father. Because once again, that has been so liberating for us. It has changed everything we are. But I also think we need to be really, really careful to understand why that characterization is used and what it's for for us. And that is not what God is. It's just that wonderful lens that we receive so that we can, in a human in a human way, in a humanistic fashion, can peer into the divine. Bruce Springsteen, one of my favorite uh, uh, psalmists um, and theologians, uh, says the best way, uh, excuse me, one of the clearest ways that I can understand the divine is through the human. Every time we see compassion shared between two human beings, that is a window into the divine. Every time we see someone doing what they're called to do, that's a window into the divine. Every time we see somebody who is willing to sacrificially do something, to be generous, to lay themselves down, to do whatever it might be, that is a window into the divine. And his creator is such, and him as father is that. It's a window into his character that we can absolutely relate to and trust his heart. Because all that he has is yours. Everything and all that he has is yours. Because he's the best father ever. So, Father, we thank you.
We love you. Help us that we would see clearer. Help us that we would peel away anything that would would try to hold us back. We don't want to have intellectual education just for the sake of becoming more intellectual. We don't want to intellectualize the things that are supposed to be felt. Father, help us to taste and see. Help us to experience who you are so that we may know. Help us that we would be those people, Father, that we experience who you really are, that we know the Father of kindness, the Son of forgiveness, and the Spirit who helps us, because that's who you are. So, Father, help us to see you as the Father of all kindness and comfort. Help us that we would see you as love and know that you have beckoned us into a clear picture of the you that we get to know. Thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Everybody have a great day, and we will see you on Thursday. Happy, happy, happy Father's Day. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.